This summer, uh, Pastor John and Pastor Richard have decided to take a break from the study of the book through Psalms that we have been, we have been engaged in and take a few weeks to focus on our primary call that God has given us as, uh, as Christians, and that is that of disciple makers. In our adult Sunday school class this morning, we've been looking together uh, through the basics of this ministry, why we do it, and what are some of the practical ways in which we do that. Um, we've talked about how, in light of our great commission uh, to make disciples of all nations, all nations that every disciple, every Christian is a disciple maker. In our time uh, in the morning service together, we are, we are going to... Um, come at this from a slightly different angle. So as you've seen in the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at ways in which Jesus is the archetype. He is the premier disciple maker. We look to Jesus and his actions and see what it is we can learn in making disciples of Christ from him. So uh, the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus in the context of evangelism. We've seen uh, in Matthew 9, Pastor John talked through how Jesus called Matthew a tax collector, a sinner, called him to follow him, follow himself, and then Jesus actively then went to sinners, went to the people that Matthew was with, and continued to call them to himself. He did not worry about his reputation. Rather, he risked his reputation of, of uh, hanging out, mingling with sinners um, in order that he might reach the lost. And then last week, Pastor Richard went through John 4, where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And Jesus does not shrink back in confronting her with sin, but rather Jesus winsomely and lovingly calls her to follow him, calls her to go and sin no more. We see Jesus here as the premier evangelist, Jesus seeking to make disciples of those who are lost. Today, we are going to see Jesus in another context. So uh, Jesus is an evangelist. Jesus is also calling sinners to conversion, but he also encourages believers toward greater faith and maturity. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I know it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Luke, but I think we'll have something, uh, Jesus has something to show us here. Luke chapter 10. So starting in verse 38, he says, uh, Luke says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading of his holy, sufficient, and inerrant word. This is a well-known passage. This is an interesting passage. Um, I remember hearing this passage as a child and thinking this might make a great excuse uh, mom and dad are asking me to clean my room or do the dishes, and I say, uh, I, I don't want to trouble myself with much serving. I want to choose the better portion. Uh, <laughs> kids, that is not what this passage is about. Kid, that is not what this passage is about. 
it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> this passage is not a clobber text to denigrate service done in the name of our Lord, but rather this is a passage that shows us just what it means to love and to treasure Jesus above all else. Now, Luke places this passage here for a reason. So, so we've, been, we've been seeing in Luke 9, Jesus says he turned his face to head toward Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't get to Jerusalem to Luke 19, right? So there's, there's 10 chapters where, where Jesus is, is between uh, places heading toward Jerusalem. But we know from John chapter 11 that Mary and Martha live in Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. So, so Jesus is shown here very close to Jerusalem, but he won't get there for nine more chapters. So uh, what Luke has done here is employed a literary technique uh, a thematically, he's thematically organized this material. So this is not chronological, but rather this is uh, real events that happened, but he's chosen to place them in this order for a thematic reason. Uh, and this is to, done to illustrate two theological points. So if you recall in chapter 10, verse 25, the lawyer asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and what does Jesus say to him? Right? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then what does Jesus do? He goes and he explains the story of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus says, this is what you must do. Love God, love neighbor. Then this is how you love neighbor. And then immediately after that, we find this text. So love God, love neighbor. This is how you love your neighbor. This is how you love God. He's, he's closing the loop here. Jesus here is showing us just what it means to love and to treasure him above all else. That is the main point of this passage. In doing that, we see Jesus as the premier, the proto-disciple maker. He is going to show us a method that he uses to further encourage maturity and faith in disciples. We get to see how he operates and what he thinks is important. And in that, we should see areas that directly apply to us as disciple makers. So the first thing that we see in this passage, verse 38, is that Jesus devotes his time to disciples. Jesus devotes his time to disciples. As we read through the book of Luke, as we went through the book of Luke the last three years, one thing became explicitly obvious. In Jesus' in Jesus's three years of ministry, he traveled from town to town teaching and preaching. He was declaring the arrival of the kingdom of God. He was evangelizing the lost. He was healing the sick. And then he spent a lot of time teaching his disciples. And this is what we see him doing here, taking time to encourage and exhort his disciples. In verse 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary. So I, I think it's important before we get into the details uh, to stress a point um, right off the bat. Both of these women were disciples of Christ. He enters this house, and both of these women love him and are a disciple of Christ. Now, Martha gets a bad rap in this passage, and 
We'll get to her shortcomings. But uh, it's important to recognize that they were both believers. They both loved Jesus. We see Martha lovingly welcoming Jesus into her home. We see Mary submissively sitting under the Lord's, under the Lord's teaching at his feet. These women loved Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, did evangelize the lost, but we see him here stopping, going out of his way, and taking time to invest in the lives of these disciples. And what's more is these are two women. These are not, um, these are not the 12 disciples he's going to have be the church leaders going forward, but these are two women. And uh, in that day, it would have been very countercultural in that society for a teacher to spend time interacting with and instructing women. It was not something that was normal, and in fact, it was something that was quite revolutionary. And, and I, I think it is very important we see it here as a good thing. We, we, as Christians, we acknowledge that all people are created in the image of God. All people are created with the same worth and the same value in Jesus treats these disciples as such. He called these two women to follow him. They have followed him in repentance and faith, and Jesus treats them as children of God. Doing this, he stops and he invests in their lives. So think for a minute what that means then. Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus who heals the sick, and Jesus who, later on, Mary and Martha find out in a very personal way, raises the dead. This God-man condescends to invest his time into these disciples' lives in a very personal, uh, very loving way. So this should spark a couple of thoughts in us immediately. First, what love we see in Jesus who are they, who are, who are we, that he should take a personal interest in our lives? We are but a vapor that is here for a short while. We vanish. And the creator and sustainer of the world, the Lamb of God, shows us love enough to personally come and care for us, to invest in our lives. He shows his love in a small way here, he shows his love in a big way as he lives a perfect life, dies a death that we deserve, and goes to the cross for our sin. And he continues to show his love for us as he intercedes, as he intercedes for his children. What love we see in Jesus. Secondly, we see a model for disciple makers. Disciple making is not a casual, grass-picking right fielder position. We, uh, we know this. I, I remember in Little League, uh, we had this kid on our team. His name was Alex. And uh, Alex uh, was on a different planet. <laughs> Alex would sit in the field. He would pick grass. He'd put the glove on the wrong hand. Uh, he, would, he would turn his hat sideways, whatever way the sun was facing. He would turn his hat so the bill blocked the sun from his eyes. Alex cared uh, nothing for the game we were playing. He had his own agenda. He was there for the pop afterwards and to joke around with the kids. Um, he was not invested in the game. Christian, you do not get to put your hat on sideways, wear the glove on the wrong hand, 
and do nothing. We are called to make disciples. We don't, we don't see Jesus idly standing by while the 12 do all of the work for him. No, we see Jesus personally and sacrificially investing his time in the lives of those who he calls. Jesus rolls up his sleeves and goes about the business of speaking truth into the lives of others. So likewise, we roll up our sleeves, we lay down our agenda, and we sacrificially invest our time in the lives of others, making disciples of Jesus. Jesus devotes his time to this task. He does this tenaciously. He does this winsomely. And the second thing we see here, he does this by declaring God's word. Jesus declares God's word. Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So what did Jesus do when he invested his time? He entered the house. What did he start doing? He started teaching God's word. Now here, um, as Jesus starts to teach God's word, we see Mary taking, uh, taking a seat at the feet of Jesus. Um, this is a place of submission. The student is lowering herself in relation to the teacher, sitting at his feet and absorbing the word. So with childlike faith, we see a picture of, of Mary. She knows Jesus. She loves Jesus. And he enters her, her home, and she can't wait to receive his message. Mary treasures Jesus. This, this is critical. And, and this is our proper response to the Lord, is it not? When we encounter the very words of God, as Mary does here, should we not be sitting in awe and submission to them? Should we not recognize our position as the student, inferior and in desperate need of him? We are not above our Lord. We are like Mary, and we should approach him with her attitude, and we should drink deeply from the word that is able to give us life. Are you approaching God in this way? Are you treating the words of God the way that we see Mary treating his words? Or are you treating them flippantly? Do you treasure him? Do you seek him in the pages of scripture, diligently pouring over them? Seeking the words of life? I, I, think, I think often for us, the answer is no. In Mary, we see the proper response to Jesus. And in Mary, we are often shamed as we do not go and do likewise. May we be those who truly treasure Christ. And may it be evident in the way that we approach him and his words. Now, that's our response as disciples. But... As we seek to make new disciples, Jesus shows us how we can foster this proper response, proper attitude. Jesus enters the house of believers and he begins sharing God's word. This is the same thing that we must do as we seek to make disciples. We share the word. We share the word with the lost. We share the word with our children. And we share the word with each other. These, these women were already believers, and Jesus is prayerfully speaking the word into their lives. And in doing so, he is encouraging them to greater faith and greater maturity. Likewise, we want to be someone who is so saturated with God's word 
that it just, it just flows out of us, that we can't help but when we speak to each other, that encouraging word, that word from God is on our lips. Uh, I remember um, back to uh, my conversion, um, I was in a Bible study at college, and I was on campus with 6,000 other people who cared nothing for God or his word, except for a few maybe pockets of, uh, of Christians here and there. Um, but God, in his providence, brought students from a nearby Bible college uh, to start an outreach Bible study. And I remember most clearly sitting there and, uh, and being so surprised and impressed that God's word was just so ingrained into their thought. We would be speaking on a topic, they would have a verse that directly applied. Or we would be uh, talking through something and they, oh, I, I've, I've seen that somewhere else here in God's word. <clears throat> they were so soaked in the word that it couldn't help but seep out of them. And, and the word is what was primary in our interactions. We, uh, we look to the Bible for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, uh, as Paul says in Timothy. It is what brought us together, and it is what uh, encouraged us as Christians to greater maturity and greater faith. God's word, by God's spirit, did the work in my life. They pointed me to Christ. They had me seek him in his scriptures. I was directly affected by the young men and women that followed Jesus' example and declared the word of God to one another. Think, think back to your conversion. Now, for many or for most, it came because someone was investing their time in you by declaring the word of God. They opened their mouth to share the word. That is our calling. That is our task as Christians. It doesn't end at conversion, but rather, like Jesus, we continue, we continue to prayerfully speak the word to one another. This is the work of a disciple maker. So here we've seen Jesus devoting time to his disciples. We've seen him declaring God's word to his disciples. And next we see Jesus denouncing sin. Jesus denounces sin. In verse 40 it says, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the, Lord's, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Martha has welcomed Jesus into her home. She has uh, gone about preparing a meal for Jesus, and uh, likely she's done this out of genuine love for Jesus. But no matter how sincere her motivation started out, Martha sins, and she does it in um, three particular ways here. So first of all, Martha is distracted. Jesus says, uh, I'm sorry, she has Jesus, the very Son of God, entering her home, and Jesus is opening up God's word. Rather than recognizing the situation for what it is, rather than realizing the significance of this event and paying careful attention to what Jesus is saying, she gets distracted with things that are of lesser importance. It is not the actions themselves, not the serving itself that is sinful, but this serving distracted her as she placed it uh, at a place of higher importance than treasuring Jesus himself. 
Secondly, she begins to feel self-pity. The fact is she deemed her service at that point to be the most important action. And she started to feel sorry for herself that she was there doing all the work. Rather than focusing on her love for Christ, this, uh, in a twisted way, becomes focusing on love of self. And then, and then finally, this self-pity turns to self-righteous resentment. She was in there doing all of the work, and Mary was sitting by letting her do it. How dare she? After all, Mary, uh, uh, Martha was working hard and doing it for a good cause, serving the Lord. And Mary was lazily sitting by letting her do all the work. In her sin, she lashes out at her sister, and then she presumes to tell Jesus what to do. These, these sins, neglecting to prioritize Christ, focusing on self and lashing out in self-righteous anger, these sins are, are common today. We see these sins in ourselves today. How often are we distracted by misplaced priorities? How often does the busyness take over and your time for God gets snuffed out? Do you feel self-pity or resentment? when you assume others should be serving in the exact same way that you are serving? These sins are common today, and we are particularly vulnerable to them when we are neglecting God's word. So what, what does Jesus do in response? Does, does he capitulate and send Mary away? No. Does he disregard Martha's concern? No. Uh, rather, he gently rebukes her. Notice how it begins. It's Martha, Martha. It's not Martha, Martha, Martha. That's something <laughs> different. But he starts out, Martha, Martha. This, this double vocative, this repeating her name is a sign of intimacy. He's not coming down hard on her. He's not lowering the boom and blasting her out of the water. Uh, no, Jesus begins by affirming his love for her, for her and, and, and her place as his friend. He could have dropped a get-behind-me-Satan like he does later on to Peter, right? But he doesn't. Wisely and gently, he begins to speak the truth to her in love. Does he gloss over her sin? No, he directly confronts her sin. He says that she is anxious and troubled about many things. She has misplaced her priorities. She is worried about the wrong things at the wrong time. She has thought of herself above others, and she's lashed out sinfully at her sister. Jesus denounces this sinful attitude, and he exposes this idolatry. She has not been acting according to the expectations of the Lord. So, so Jesus does the, the tough job of confronting someone in sin, right? He, he doesn't shrink back. He's not spineless, but he confronts someone in their sin. He doesn't brush it off to make the situation more comfortable. Neither does he attack her, but he addresses her in a loving manner. This, this speaks of volumes to us today. Do we do the same when we see a brother caught in sin, when we see a sister caught in sin? Do we say something? Do we shrink back, not wanting to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone? If we love them, if we, if we love their soul, we will say something. We are to grow in holiness and righteousness and to encourage the, our, our fellow Christians on to love and good deeds. If we care for their soul, 
we will risk resentment that could arise from an uncomfortable conversation. Do, do you believe this? I think, I think the answer probably is yes. Do you do this? And, and I think often the answer is no. I think this is, this is hard. This is, this is one of the hard callings that we have as Christians. Prayerfully speaking God's word into each other's life is a huge part of what it means to be a disciple maker. And speaking his word to our brothers and sisters in this church is vital to our faith community. We do this out of love. We don't do this out of malice. But we do this even if it means it's hard for us. Now, there's, there's the ugly flip side, right? There's uh, the other side where we're all too eager to go hunting for sin or we, we are all too eager to pull out the big guns and clobber someone um, with something that we even perceive as a sin um, without regard for them as a person. And this, this is not what we see Jesus doing in this passage. He confronts sin, and he confronts sin firmly and without wavering. But he also does it lovingly with an eye toward reconciliation. We, sh- we should be doing the same. That is important, and Jesus shows us how to confront sin in a way that encourages his disciple to deep, deeper and fuller faith in him. Jesus shows us in this passage a model for disciple-making, devoting his time, declaring God's word, denouncing sin, and finally, in verse 42, Jesus directs priorities. Jesus directs priorities. Backing up to verse 41, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary— Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says one thing is necessary. One thing. What is this unnamed thing? I I can't help but think of the movie uh, from a long time ago, uh, City Slickers, where the old cowboy Curly says there's one thing that's important to Billy Crystal's character, and, and then he doesn't tell him what it is. And it's similar, but Jesus gives us a hint and it gives us a good idea of what this one thing that is necessary is. Mary seems to have found it. Mary is treasuring Jesus. Mary is feasting on the words of Christ. Mary is finding her joy in him. She is not looking to self or to anything else for satisfaction, but she is trusted fully and she is drinking deeply from the well of living water. Mary has found this one thing. Martha is neglecting this one thing. Filling our calendars up, even with ministry things, does not necessarily mean that we are treasuring Christ. We look to ourselves, we look to Christ and and examine ourselves to determine, are we truly treasuring Christ? On this, uh, commentator Philip Riken says, Every believer is called to grow in his or her understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teaching of the Bible, the doctrines of the Christian faith, and the way these truths apply to daily life. Mary reveled in her opportunity to do just that. While Martha was busy preparing a banquet, Mary was already having one. She was feasting on the words of Christ. He goes on to say, we can do perfectly, or God can do perfectly well without our service. But we, on the other hand, are in desperate need of him. Indeed, Mary was feasting on the good portion. Now, this is not a call to stop serving or to downplay the importance 
of various ministry functions, we, we look to the rest of the Bible. We don't look at this in isolation. We see where it calls us to serve, right? James says that faith without works is dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that while we, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and that we should walk in them. As Christians, we are called to a life of love and good works, and that is not what's being addressed here. Rather, this passage, in this passage, we see misplaced priorities and a sinful attitude. We see, we see feasting on the word of God, treasuring Jesus above all else, and seeking him with wholehearted devotion. That is the one thing that is necessary. This is our top priority, and no amount of doing good without this uh, will help. Jesus has lived a perfect, a perfect life, he died a death that we deserve, paying the penalty for our sin. He bore God's wrath on the cross. He was raised back to life in vindication. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is who Mary and Martha entertained at their home, and this is who we seek today. Jesus has invited you to come and feast on him, to be captivated by him to repent of your sin and trust in him. This is what this passage is calling us to, treasuring Christ. And it is out of this love and out of this passion for him that we then serve. It's in this order. We must be filled with the word and the spirit, and then we are equipped to serve. We are equipped to serve then in a way that is pleasing to God. We serve like Martha with a heart like Mary. There's a church in our association that has a tagline that I love. Um, and it, it, goes, it goes like this, to know him and to make him known. I, I love that tagline for this reason. It places the two things in proper priority. We must first know him. We must grow in Christ. We must learn what he's revealed to us in his word and we must know him in a real, personal way. Then, once we know him, we make him known. We serve. We make disciples. We live out the Christian life in a way that then makes sense because we have known him first. Then we serve. And we serve not begrudgingly or out of a sense of duty, but we serve out of love and compassion and thankfulness to Christ. We don't look in self-righteous anger at those who don't measure up to our standards but we encourage in love with an aim toward further maturity, greater maturity in Christ. Jesus has shown us what it means to truly love God, and he has given us an example on how to encourage others toward that end. So as we bring this to a close, I want you to see three main implications from this passage. First, as a disciple, behold Christ. Behold Christ. Jesus did not come to this earth merely to be an example. Do not misunderstand me this morning. He is so much more than that. He is the bread of life. He is the object of our worship. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is our everything. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. We look to the pages of Scripture and we see our loving Creator condescending to us in order that He may be glorified and that we might find our true joy in him. Like Mary, this, this should enthrall us. This should captivate us. This should consume us. The gospel 
is the glorious news that the kingdom of God is here and it has arrived in the person of Jesus. He has called sinners to repentance and faith in him. And in doing so, we have been adopted by the Father and are joint heirs with Christ. We fall down in reverence. We sit at his feet in submission and we gaze at the glory of Christ. We behold Christ. Is this where you are this morning? Do you behold Christ? Do you come to the pages of Scripture in your quiet time, <clears throat> ready to hear from God? Do you, give, uh, do you go to him in prayer, in submission to him as Lord? Do you come here on Sundays, ready to gather together with God's people and encounter God corporately? Are you beholding Christ? We see Luke's call to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And then we see his answer on how this is accomplished. Mary sits at the feet of the Savior and treasures Jesus. Treasure Jesus. Behold Christ. The second implication, as a disciple, kill sin. Martha is anxious about many things, and her terrible attitude is on display. Where she may have started with good motives, her reaction to the situation shows that he, she has embedded sin in her life. Jesus lovingly but firmly confronts her in her sin and rebukes her. As disciples, we should be actively seeking to kill sin in our lives. We should, we should search our motives. We should be testing ourselves. Are you serving in a ministry out of impure motives? Do you harbor bitterness? Are you serving out of an overflow for God or out of a sense of duty? If you find yourself falling short, look to Christ. Go back to step one. Behold Christ. Revel in the gospel of Jesus. Look to him in repentance and faith. A third implication for this text, make disciples like Jesus made disciples. Jesus is not merely an example, that's true, but Jesus is our perfect model of a disciple maker. Jesus devoted his time to making disciples. Is this your aim? Do you wake up in the morning with a plan on how you're going to go about fulfilling the Great Commission that day? This is a command from Christ, this is not a suggestion, and we will not be found faithful if we are not actively planning and 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 make, uh, planning our time and making disciples of, to make disciples of Christ. You, you won't fall backwards into this. This is not our default position. It takes time and it takes planning. Like Jesus, we should be investing our time in people as we seek to bring them to the right. Jesus declared the word of God. Is this your aim? Are you prayerfully speaking the word into one another's lives? Are you soaking yourself in the Bible so that this is even possible? If we truly treasure him, we will be drinking deeply from the word of God. Like Jesus, we should be speaking, teaching, preaching, and sharing God's word. Jesus denounces sin. Is this your aim? Do you risk an uncomfortable conversation with a brother or sister in order to confront sin? We all have blind spots. We all have areas in our lives that we don't see. And our faith family should be lovingly speaking the truth to one another. Like Jesus, we should care about sin and care about holiness and lovingly spur one another on to love and good deeds. And finally, Jesus directed priorities. Is this your aim? Do you encourage one another in the things that really matter? 
Do you point others toward that one thing that is necessary? Do you lovingly encourage one another to treasure Jesus above all else? Like Jesus, our priority in this life is to love God with full devotion. I pray that we encourage one another toward greater maturity in faith in Christ like our Lord. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, his atoning death. God, we thank you for this gift that you have given us. God, I pray that we do behold Christ. I pray that he is our treasure. I pray that we choose the good portion. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you how it directs us to him. God, I pray that you forgive us of our sin as we neglect this. But Lord, I pray that we are encouraged to greater faith, greater maturity in Christ. Lord, I pray that you direct our priorities, that we conform our lives to what you have shown here. Help us to lovingly encourage others to do the same as we make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.